Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are our Father in heaven, our good, perfect, kind, merciful, and gracious Father. Lord, would we model our fathering after your tender care for us? We pray today, Lord, that as we look at these wonderful doctrines of your word and your person and your works in creation and providence, that we would be encouraged in our hearts, that we would be um, established in our faith, that we would be uplifted by the truth that you are wise and powerful and holy, and that you work all things according to the counsel of your perfect will. Bless our time together this morning, Lord, to the end that we might grow to love and know Christ more, that we might be more ably equipped to serve in his church and in our own homes, and that we might glorify your name, which you deserve. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this morning, uh, our aim is to get through five chapters of the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is outlined for us in sections or sessions two and two A in our officer training manual. Uh, just as a reminder, you don't feel obligated to bring the shepherd leader with you or to read portions of it between uh, the weeks that we meet. That's just for you. That's a gift from us to you. It won't be. Um, we're not going to follow along with anything in it during our time in the next uh, 12 weeks together. Uh, that book was just for the men who, <clears throat> who came to the, to the course. There was one other thing I was meant to mention. Oh, yes. Um, our last session, which is in the first week of September, I believe, uh, Neil will be teaching that session, and it's going to be on growing the session and the diaconate, so growing the leadership of the church and what that looks like practically. What are the steps from here to serving in the church as an officer? So he's going to deal with that at length when we get to that week. I'm going to say now, just to sort of temper expectations, that our plan and intention is to grow the leadership of the church slowly, uh, for a number of reasons that I won't get into now. I'm sure you guys can assume what those are. And so we're looking at one to two new elders and deacons uh, coming out of this. So just be aware of that. I'm, I'm sure that you guys know that already or have thought about that, uh, but I want to put that out there today so you're aware of our intentions and the direction that we're going. And then Neil will cover down a little bit more explicitly on the process. Uh, what does it take to be... Uh, uh, elected and nominated and voted on by the congregation, ev- examined and so forth by the session. So, Westminster Doctrine. Uh, I hope that everyone has had a chance to not only read these two sessions, but as well look in a Westminster Confession of Faith. I see some of them floating around here um, to read chapters one through five. I'm going to do some reading in chapters one through five so we can enjoy the things that uh, David Hall is talking about here in this chapter. Um, But we begin with Scripture, and Hall makes a point to identify the fact that the Westminster Confession is distinguished from its contemporaries by highlighting Scripture as its very first trumpet call, he says. Scripture is the doctrinal foundation for all the other doctrines we believe. This is not to say that the assembly elevated the Bible over God, making God the second chapter, obviously, but rather to attempt to communicate that its basis for everything it's going to say about God comes from Scripture. And so you'll find that more and more since the middle 1600s, systematic theologies and confessions that follow the assemblies uh, leading here begin with Scripture. 
recognizing that it is our source of authority. So even what we say about God comes from Scripture. And obviously there's some interrelationship there, uh, but the chapter 1 of the Confession concerns Scripture. And we'll go through most of this this morning, uh, but not all of it. He does say uh, in his first paragraph, all of the great Protestant confessions of the 16th and 17th centuries recognized Holy Scripture as authoritative and unrivaled by any other source. So it, the point there simply being that this, the Bible, not the confession, I'm holding this in my hand, the Bible here is our source of authority for faith and practice. You've heard that phrase before. Uh, that's where we find the truth about God and the truth about how we should live in light of who God is. Um, the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what does the scriptures principally teach? Anybody? That's right. Yep, absolutely. What, is the, what, is, what man is to believe concerning God and what duties God requires of man. And so that's reflecting here on chapter 1 and on what Hall is saying. He does add, though, that the assembly, or we'll, you'll hear me use the phrase the divines, the Westminster divines, were not only saying that the scripture is authoritative and unrivaled, uh, by superior by degree, but also by kind. So it's not just that these things are here and the Bible's just a little bit better. The Bible is in a category of itself as a piece of literature because it's divine revelation. And so that's what sets it apart, apart from even the confession. And so as far as we believe that this is an accurate representation of what the Bible says, we turn to the confession or confessions and creeds and so forth. Um, what is so unique about the Westminster Confession is how refined and explicit this base of authority is from the very beginning. Again, beginning with chapter 1, as we have said. B.B. Uh, Warfield quotes, uh, says, There is certainly in the whole mass of confessional literature no more nobly conceived or ably wrought out statement of doctrine than this chapter, placed at the head of their confession and laid at the foundation of their system of doctrine. What a wonderful statement. Nobly conceived and ably wrought out statement. I want to read uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, 1 of the Holy Scripture. This really is fantastic. Although the light of nature... And the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, reflecting on Romans 1, yes. Yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will which is necessary unto salvation. You can't be saved by looking at the stars, in other words. They scream that there is a God, but they don't communicate his way of salvation. That which is necessary unto salvation, we're going to come back to that word. Therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in divers manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto the church and afterwards for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world to commit the same wholly unto writing. So, in other words, he's saying that he wants us to know his will and he wants to preserve and propagate the truth, which is contained in the word, to establish and comfort us against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Carrying on here, which maketh the Holy Scripture to be most necessary. Those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people now being ceased. And we'll come back to that a little bit later as well, speaking specifically of um, unique revelation. So the first 
section there, the Westminster Confession, is brilliantly articulated. It is refined and explicit. And as B.B. Warfield notes, there is no other statement more nobly conceived or ably wrought out than this. This chapter is not only a grand statement for Scripture, or excuse me, of Scripture for Reformed Presbyterians, but many of the strongest Bible believers of all dom- denominations could fly their flag under this banner. In other words, we often um, are accused of elevating the confession, elevating that we worship the confession. I've had that statement said to me just in recent months, uh, that how much we love the confession. Well, as far as the confession uh, articulates the truths of, of Scripture, of course I do love it. Um, however, we don't elevate the confession to the level of Scripture. However, it's a wrong assumption for a lot of people to say, because it's not the Bible, we don't want to uh, plant our flag here either. Have you heard that? No creed but Christ, uh, no confession but the Bible. And that's brilliantly ironic that you have a creedal statement which says, I have no creed but Christ, right? Uh, we all get that. Um, but beyond that, what it, for someone to say our only creed is the Bible, the question that we ask is, well, what do you believe the Bible is and what do you believe the Bible says? And that's why it's so helpful for us to be a confessional church. This statement on Scripture, I would be shocked for someone to be able to argue against the statement that it says uh, and to consider themselves a Bible-believing person. So Warfield, this is a bit historical context, and this is helpful, I think. On page 52, the second full paragraph there, beginning with Warfield, Warfield suggests in this first chapter's discussion of the meaning and the use of the Bible was in exact agreement with other summary statements of the day. In other words, our confessional standards are not entirely unique and standalone. There are aspects of them. I think the thoroughness of them is, is certainly unique. Uh, however, it wasn't all alone. One could compare a paragraph from the Scotsman George Gillespie. Uh, Gillespie was one of the Scottish delegate that came down to the Westminster Assembly about halfway through their period when they realized that they couldn't do what Parliament wanted them to do with the 39 Articles, and they had to start afresh. They invited a group of Scotsmen, of course, to come save the day, and they, uh, Gillespie was among them, a very young man at the time, uh, and his language uh, is very similar. And it may be, I'm not positive here, uh, if this predates the writing of the Confession or if it's afterwards. Uh, Irrespective, Gillespie wrote, The Scripture is known to be indeed the Word of God by the beams of divine authority it hath in itself, such as the heavenliness of the matter, the majesty of the style, the irresistible power over the conscience, the general scope to abase man and to exalt God. Nothing driven at but God's glory and man's salvation, the supernatural mysteries revealed therein, which could never have entered the reason of men. And he goes on and on from there. Similar language to 1.5. I'll read that uh, in brief so we can hear the overlap. One five. We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to an high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture and the heavenliness of the matter, 
the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the content of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God. The full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation. There's that glory of God, salvation of man, and many other incomparable excellencies, and so on and so forth. Uh, to include language about the working of the Holy Spirit, to confirm it into our hearts. And so the, the confession articulates the value of Scripture as a holy and heavenly document, something that was breathed out by God himself and profitable for us. It talks about the, the uh, efficacy of the doctrines contained therein. Probably not. Uh, specific to... Uh, all I mean to say is the confession uh, is articulating the heavenliness of the, of the Word of God, the fact that it's breathed out by God, and what's contained in it is what we need, the necessary information needed to glorify God and to receive salvation through Christ. So he goes on to talk about the attributes of Scripture, and so we'll, we'll look at this now. I, this section is certainly longer than the other four chapters, and I want to camp here for a bit because of that. Um, again, however, however you come to your conclusions, which I hope align with the confession, on things like the attributes of God, the Trinitarian nature of God, uh, the doctrine of creation and providence and so forth, uh, the reason we're spending time here is to remind ourselves the significance of being a confessional Reformed Presbyterian church, and that confession is rooted in Scripture. And so that's where we look first. So if someone were to ask Will a question about providence, his source shouldn't be the Westminster Confession. It should be what the Westminster Confession says about what Scripture says about providence. And so we're going to camp here in Scripture for a while. Uh, the first paragraph teaches that the scriptures are necessary, which is also a comment on both on human ability as well as nature around us. What does he mean by that? What does he mean that the fact that scripture is necessary is a commentary on both nature and humanity? Anybody? Jacob. That's right. So creation is inadequate to give us the way of salvation, which makes Scripture necessary. And mankind is unable to know God as he ought to, which makes Scripture necessary. So left to ourselves and left with only creation, we're in trouble. So the Scriptures are necessary. The Scriptures are necessary. I'm going to say that one more time. The Scriptures are necessary to know God and what he wants us to do. So this is a rhetorical question. So how much time do you spend with the scriptures? The, huh? as, much time as, possible. as much as possible. That ought to be each of our answer. And, and often it's not. Uh, the opening salvo of the Westminster Divines was, the Bible is necessary. And all of us ought to say, oh, how, how little I really act like that's true at least from time to time. And as men who lead in their homes and men who aspire to leadership in the church, it ought to be our conviction that the people with whom we've been given charge of their care, our children, our wives, our flock, that we ought to encourage them along these same lines to spend time in God's word because it's necessary. You by yourself with the woods, you know, the mountains are my church and the, you know, I worship in the woods. That's Great, but it's not adequate, and the scriptures are necessary. Um, people are unable to plumb the depths of those things which God has not revealed. 
We can only know what He has chosen to make known through Scripture or natural revelation. As this first paragraph indicates, God does reveal some things through nature and creation. Again, the psalmist, uh, Psalm 19, Romans 1.20 tells us that what can, certain things about God can be known through the created order, but it's only enough to condemn us, not enough to save us. It's insufficient to lead to ample truth. The result is that all human beings are given enough through nature around them so as to require them to seek their creator. If they refuse to do this, they have enough revealed information to render them guilty before the sovereign majesty of God. One of the participants of the assembly, Anthony Burgess, by the way, Anthony Burgess wrote a brilliant two-volume commentary on John 17. Uh, I had the distinct privilege of, of hearing a man at Synod last week, week before last, try to preach through all of John 17 in about 45 minutes. Burgess took like a thousand pages and still, you know, admits that he didn't get through all of it. But if you have the chance to pick that up, I recommend it to you. He says this um, on this topic, as for that dangerous opinion that makes God's calling of man to repentance by the creatures to be enough and sufficient, Uh, In other words, the call of repentance by creation is what he means there. It's a dangerous opinion that says that that's enough and sufficient, and we reject it as that which cuts at the very root of free grace. A voice, indeed, we grant they have. Creation has a voice. But yet they make Paul's trumpet an uncertain sound. Men cannot by them, creational revelation, know the nature of God and his worship, touching a bit there on the regulative principle, and wherein our justification doth consist. In other words, we want people to look at the world around us, and I think Jim does a wonderful job of highlighting the fact that uh, we point people to God in things that are good and beautiful and true. And that's true in art, that's true in literature. Schaefer was really big on this. It's true in film and in music. It's true in community and in, in government. It's true in architecture and so forth. It's true in creation. We want people to look at creation and know that there is a God, and we want to use what he's made to draw others' attention to him. But that's not sufficient. That's not sufficient. We are people of the book, and this church is a church about the Word of God. It's why our statement begins with the Word of God. Proclaim the Word of God. Proclaim the Word of God. Everything we do is founded on that. But God gave us Scripture to perfectly meet our need that goes beyond what can be learned from the natural order. So the confession gives us four purposes for which God gave Scripture, four reasons here on page 53, uh, for the better, more sure spreading of the truth. Uh, What they mean there is, you know, let's say Kyle here becomes a believer and um, wants to tell everybody all about the things he knows about Christ, uh, the best way for him to do that is to expound the Scriptures. Unfortunately, and this is somewhat of a cultural commentary on evangelicalism right now, most people are inclined to believe that the best way to spread the truth is to tell people your testimony. And so the principal thing a person does after becoming saved is say, let me tell you about who I used to be and who I am now. Now that's an important component, and we don't want to minimize the significance. Paul does this. I used to be this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy, and look at what God has done to me. He says in Ephesians 2, don't forget you guys who were once alienated from God and hostile to him uh, without hope in the world and so forth. So those things are valuable, but the way that we spread the sure truth of the word of God is with the word of God. Again, we're people of the book. Number two, for the sounder establishment of the church, 
on the foundation of the unchanging scriptures. So, uh, everything that we do in worship and in practice, everything from our perspective on missions to our perspective on officers to our perspective on preaching and so forth, is rooted in this unchanging book. Uh, If we were to adopt the, the common idea that uh, whatever works, the pragmatists' approach to church, uh, we would be in big trouble because what worked 10 years ago certainly doesn't work anymore, and what worked 10 years before that certainly didn't work then, and we'd be in this constant state of flux of trying to adapt what we do in worship and in practice to the world around us. Rather, the church is established, was established, and continues to grow on the unchanging scriptures as its foundation. Number three, uh, this is a brilliant statement, for the comfort of Christians when they were undergoing trials associated with the weakness of the flesh and the attack of Satan. Um, I'm sure that everyone in this room and everyone who will listen to this online has endured trials, whether it be trials by virtue of their own flesh and sinfulness or trials by virtue of the enemy's attack on you distinctly and purposefully uh, for one reason or another. The place that we turn for comfort is the Bible. It's the place that contains the promises of God. Now, I know what you're thinking. I know what I'm thinking. Coming to church and being around God's people is very comforting in times of trial, isn't it? Having people come to your house and pray for you is very comforting in times of trial or suffering. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs is particularly comforting in times of trial, isn't it? But all of those things find their basis for our practice in the Scriptures. The Bible tells us to pray for one another. The Bible tells us to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. The Bible tells us to gather together and not neglect doing so as is the practice of some. The Bible tells others to come alongside us and weep when we weep and rejoice when we rejoice. And so we gather as the Christian church. We're doing exactly what this says according to Scripture. Now, I'm going to take a moment here of personal privilege and say... Uh, in Ephesians, when it tells us to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to each other, making melody in our hearts to the Lord, uh, I take that as a command. And so you may awkwardly catch my eyes during uh, singing, when we're singing psalms and hymns in worship, and I am making eye contact with you on purpose, because the Bible says to sing to one another. You know what we're doing in that moment when I make eye contact with Jacob? He's sitting over here because I sit up here on the dais and he's over there. And I make eye contact. We are obeying scripture and saying to one another, we believe these things about the God we're singing to. It's a way that we encourage one another in the faith. So don't be weirded out if I make strange, like direct eye contact with you the next time we're singing in church together. And I want to encourage you to practice it because it's a very intimate thing. And it's a very Christian thing, and it's a very biblical thing to look another person in the eyes, a man or a woman or a child, and say, I believe this about the God I'm singing to, and I think you do too. Amen. And number four, for a perpetual, this is again the fourth reason that scripture was given, for a perpetual record in writing so as to settle disputes and give us guidance. I love that. 
what was the Westminster Assembly but a, uh, a nine-year-long dispute about what we ought to believe? Now, obviously, there, were, there was a lot of unity there, uh, and, but there were everything from Congregationalists to Episcopalians to Presbyterians in the Assembly, and they came to a lot of consensus on the things that Scripture teaches. Um, but the reason they did that is because they turned to Scripture. They turned to Scripture, not their personal tradition or not their denominational background. They turned to Scripture to answer those questions. And so it's given to us um, for settling disputes and to give us guidance in how we should do things. Uh, with these purposes in mind, God gave the Scriptures which were most necessary. Most necessary. Um, that in God's former ways of revealing himself, and I mentioned this a moment ago, through dreams, prophets, signs, and audible voices, those are no longer his modes of revelation. These ceased with the age of the apostles and prophets. Uh, since then, God has committed his sufficient will and mind in the canon of Scripture. Uh, this is a statement against the, the continuationist doctrine of, con- of current revelation that's still received from God. Um, I say this again as a slight aside here, not to belabor this point. There, there's a lot of um, terms that are being currently hyphenated to Reformed, which don't make sense in light of what Reformed theology really teaches. And so there's a whole denomination that exists that call themselves Reformed Continuationists. But I understand what they're saying. What they mean is Reformed Soteriology. They, what they mean is they like tulip and continuationism. But the system of reform doctrine, as it's understood in the Westminster Confession, doesn't provide room for that hyphen continuationist addition uh, uh, there because the confession says very clearly these older ways in which God communicated to people have ceased because what is necessary and sufficient about the will and mind of God is contained in the canon of Scripture. Uh, the second paragraph of the canon goes on to list the 66 books. I am not going to belabor this. If you have any disagreements with those, see your elder uh, after, after worship today. 66 books. There is historical context, though. This is being written uh, in the 1640s and early 1650s. And so there's a lot of uh, debate over, uh, of course, the preceding hundred years uh, from Bloody Mary and Elizabeth and King James and Charles I and King Henry VIII, you know, way back in the beginning of this whole uh, issue. They're going through, we're Catholic, no, we're Protestant, no, we're Catholic, no, we're kind of a middle way, we like both, no, we're Catholic again. And so the divines were writing against the Catholic position on the apocryphal writings. Just be aware of that. The reason that it's listed so explicitly, these six six books is because uh, they're acknowledging that there may be people in the land who still go, well, wait a minute. What about those other books that we used to hear about in church? All right. Yes, Eric, please. Yeah. Right. And so again, this goes this goes way back, way back, 1200, 1400 years before the divines. The earliest um, 
the earliest documents that we have that include at least the 27 books of the New Testament. There's a piece of paper called the Moratorium Fragment, which dates from the late second century 186 or something like that late second early third century and it contains the list of 27 new testament books so that's an important note although that's not proof positive because it's a fragment so it could have included 150 other books that we just don't know about um but it does contain those 27 the old testament settled the old testament canon was settled prior to christ i mean this is clear in jewish writing and so it's not hard for us to ascertain what were the books of the old testament of course there weren't 39 because they didn't have first and second samuel and first and second chronicles and so forth and all of your minor prophets were considered one book the book of the 12 and so you've got uh, the old testament was settled but as far as the the church fathers And the early councils of the church say 400 and before. Uh, They were using a couple criteria. Number one was the, uh, the relationship between these books and the rest of the canon. So there wouldn't be any contradictory nature uh, in these books. It wouldn't say something that other books unsaid or had said differently against. Number two, there would be some apostolic connection. Uh, obviously, not all of the New Testament books were written by apostles, but there was apostolic contact with Luke and Paul, for example, or with James and Jude, who were, in fact, the brothers of Jesus. And so there's contact with somebody in that, which is why, for example, even books like Clement's letters, his epistles, he was closely connected with John, but was writing independently of John to churches in Corinth, for example, uh, his own material. And the reason that Clement wasn't included is because it was only repeat material of other things written in the New Testament already, rather than unique material. Um, So Luke, however, was legitimately partnered with Paul and was recording his life and ministry. That's why there's a difference. Um, He says here, and Hall talks about this as well, the perspicuity of it. So there's a clarity issue. If you've ever read any of the apocryphal books or any of the the extra gospels, you'll quickly become aware that they just don't make sense. There's a lot of gaps and uh, uh, strange accounts in them. The Gospel of Thomas, which is one that the liberal uh, critics love, is just filled with the strangest stories of Jesus as a child getting angry at some kid on the playground for pushing him over and turning him into a rock, like uh, grabbing dust and throwing it in the air and it becomes a bird, like he was showing off that he could do these things. It's very strange, Uh, and it's contrary to Jesus' humble nature in the other Gospels, for example. Um, so that might not be all of them, but, uh, a number of reasons. Lastly, I'll say this: some of the apocryphal writings contain intertestamental history. Um, however, what they all to a, to a one fail to do is to connect the history that they're conveying to the covenant keeping promises of God. Rather, they're simply history. So looking at the books of Maccabees, for example, you don't see the sort of language that the chronicler uses of God and his covenant promise to David and how he was maintaining the line and so forth. Rather, you simply see history. And so I commend those as historical documents that are worth reading, in fact, uh, to get a picture of where some of these things came from and and some of what happened during that period. But uh, they don't fit the criteria of the authority, the perfection, Hall says, and the perspicuity uh, that we're going to talk about now. Good question. I should have have repeated your question. I keep forgetting. I've got this mic on. Eric asked, how would we, what did the early church um, 
use as criteria for accepting uh, Scripture as part of the canon. All right, there we go. Moving on, bottom of page 54. From these and any actual study of the other writings of these original authors of the Confession, it can be seen that their view of Scripture was that it was inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative in all that it taught. It was inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative. Now, there are some people who will uh, kind of bemoan those four terms. Uh, and I think he, he here says authority, so he's making that link. And then perfection, the perfection is because it's breathed out by God, which means inspired, which demands infallibility and inerrancy. Okay, So he's lumping those together under perfection. And then the clarity of Scripture is a really important point. I'm looking at time, and so we're going to move pretty quickly here. Um, the word of God is authoritative. This goes back to everything we've already said about it being necessary and it being for faith and practice. So the word of God is our authority, but its perfection is directly connected to the fact that God is the one who breathed it out, that he spoke it into existence, that men did not write as they saw fit, but they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, the apostle says. And so there are a number of places in scripture that communicate this to us. And what that means is that the scripture is authoritative because it says so, not because the church says so. Once again, there's that push against the Roman Catholic, uh, Roman Catholic doctrine. The Bible says these things are true about itself, and it being the word of God makes it so. He says in the second paragraph on page 55, the belief in scripture's authority is a byproduct of our belief in God as infallibly truthful and incapable of lying. So he's starting to make those links between the, uh, the first two chapters. Uh, certain proofs of the Bible may be helpful from time to time. The Dead Sea Scrolls were a wonderful uh, boost for those who had questions about the Old Testament and its veracity and uh, its um, uh, uh, legitimacy. The Isaiah scroll, which is the longest scroll that was found in Qumran, uh, it's unrolled. If you go to Israel, you can see it, and it's in a museum, and it's unrolled around this, this pillar in the center of the room. And it, 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 I mean, it takes like a minute to walk around this thing. It's so big. It's the size of this room. If you lined it, it would line almost all the walls of this room. And it contains somewhere in the range of 1% variance from what your current English or ESV book of Isaiah says. And those differences are not theological at all. They're spelling and things like that. Uh, so that's very helpful, but that doesn't prove the truthfulness of the Bible. Um, in fact, the truthfulness of the Bible is not based on the proofs that affirm it, but rather on the God who wrote it. Finally, on this page anyway, uh, the divines in chapter 1, part 5, say that our full persuasion and assurance of the truth and authority is also from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. This is the answer for the question why unbelievers don't read the Bible and immediately become believers. Why unbelievers don't read the Bible and immediately feel convicted of sin. Why unbelievers don't read the Bible and immediately decide to give their lives to God and to believe everything that he said about himself and them because the work of the spirit in your heart is what makes the word of God impactful in the life of the person receiving it by faith and so the Holy Spirit bearing witness uh, is the persuasion the persuading part of the Bible's authority and usefulness.
Uh, just a couple more things. Good gracious. All right. Uh, the, on page 56, he makes this kind of throwaway statement here that I want to lean on for a second. Um, Nevertheless, we acknowledge that the inward illumination of the Spirit of God is necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word. So the confession not only depends on the Spirit to convince of authority, but the presence and the work of the Spirit is necessary for the correct lighting up of the Word. In other words, the Spirit is all over present in the significance of the Bible and its usefulness for us. And what he says here at the bottom of this paragraph is fantastic. This statement is Trinitarian and fully dependent on the third or the work of the third person of the Godhead. Um, every part of our Christian life from the inception of it, from our salvation to our continued daily walk and use of God's word is a Trinitarian endeavor, including our prayers. We pray to the Father, the Spirit carries those prayers, and the Son mediates them to the Father, right? Everything about the Christian life is a Trinitarian endeavor, and that's on display here in the earliest pages of our confession. Okay, so what about the question, what do you do with stuff that's not in the Bible? For example, um, we have, and I don't, I'm not going to get into a regular principle of worship discussion now. Eric's going to teach on that on week seven, I think. But there are things that the Bible doesn't say A, B, and C about, let alone X, Y, and Z about. He uses this phrase here, and speaking about the number of elders prescribed for each church and so forth, as sanctified common sense. Sanctified common sense. In other words, these are things which are understood in the Word of God by good and necessary consequence. We can deduce things that the Bible says without saying, and we can employ practices that the Bible commends without commending. Now, we're very careful in delineating between elements of worship, for example, and circumstances. We wouldn't add something to our worship service that the Bible doesn't tell us to add. But we can say, hey, look, we've got 440 members. Six elders ain't enough. We need eight. Okay. The Bible doesn't say you need eight. It doesn't say you need six. It doesn't say to only have six. It doesn't say one to ten ratio. So we can make some inference by reading the Bible and using sanctified wisdom of the leadership of the church in order to come to a conclusion on these matters. Uh, So be careful of the sort of attitude that says, well, the Bible doesn't say that, so why are we doing it? Well, that's true for a lot of things, but we use sanctified common sense and prayer. The Bible, or uh, Hall talks about the perspicuity of scripture, and uh, I'll just say this uh, as we wrap this up. What he means to say is two different things, and I think each of them are important. Number one, he says, it's true that there are things in the Bible that are hard to understand. We can't deny that when we talk about perspicuity. When we say the Bible is clear, it doesn't mean it's easy. There are parts of the Bible that you have read, that I have read, that your children are reading or other people are reading going, I have no idea what that means. That's true, and it would be foolish to deny that. It would be silly for us to look a person in the face and say, no, 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 the Bible, oh, it's so easy. I remember when I first became a Christian, I read Revelation, bam, I knew exactly what day Jesus was coming back. But you hear that a lot from people, and that's nonsense. There are things in the Bible that are difficult to interpret and understand. That's not what perspicuity means. What it does mean is that there's no part of the Bible that's marked for theologians only. That all of the Bible is for all of God's people. 
that you don't need an education in order to be able to understand what Scripture says. You don't. In fact, what did, what did the uh, the Sanhedrin say when they kicked Peter and John out in Acts chapter four? It says they perceived that they were just Galilean fishermen. How are they able to talk like this? How are they able to do these things? They recognize that their lack of education uh, lended credibility to the fact that they were really members of Christ, that they were really with Him and knew what He said and taught. Uh, and so we don't want to create an atmosphere that makes new Christians or young Christians or Christians without a theological education feel like they need us to be able to spend time with Christ and His Word. Yet we recognize that there are things that are difficult to understand, and it's been given to us to help them understand those things. And so both are true. Okay, I'll leave it at that. Um, let's talk about election, creation, and providence in 18 minutes. <laughs> normally, normally I have an out. Normally I say, well, Neil, I mean, I'm sure that we, but we have a guest preacher this morning. And so I think we're, he's going to be done right on time, I bet. Okay, guys, I'm sure you have questions or comments about election. Because of the recording and the nature of this, uh, I'm going to limit those. Um, if you do have significant questions about the doctrine of scripture or what the confession says, please communicate those to me or to one of the elders, uh, and we'll address them in in future classes as we have time. Uh, let's talk about election. Now his chapter here, uh, he combines all of these in about 20 pages, uh, election, creation, and providence. Um, he almost skips over the doctrine of God, uh, chapter 2, which I, I understand why. It, he says the chapter about the attributes uh, and the Trinitarian nature of God, it, it should, uh, how does he put it, um, one can hardly disagree with the content unless he disagrees with Scripture itself. So that chapter is so thoroughly biblical, and I wish we had time to talk about more of those things, but we simply don't. He, I will mention the, the element that he mentions here, uh, section two or chapter 2, part 1, that describes God as without body parts and passions. Um, the authors clearly meant to depict God as not being human, uh, not having human body parts. Those are anthropomorphic statements, my strong right arm and so forth uh, in the Bible. Uh, this does somewhat speak against the doctrines of the Mormon church that God does have a body. In fact, because he was a person before he became a God and so forth. Um, but what it really means is that God is not fickle or mutable or driven by sinful or whimsical passion. Um, this is the doctrine of immutability and impassibility. The, the doctrines of immutability, God does not change. Impassibility, he is not passionate. In other words, God is not inflamed with emotion the way that we are. He is not moved upon the way that we are. God is not responsive and reactive the way that we are. However, uh, and this is, this is something that I would commend you talk with Neil about. This is an area of his particular um, interest and, and passion. Other verses make it clear that the Holy Spirit can be grieved and that God loves. And so we don't, we don't want to make our doctrine say things about God that he, says, uh, that he doesn't say about himself. Okay, So whatever we mean by God is not passionate or he is not impassioned or he is not mutable does not mean that God doesn't actually love us. 
And it doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit can't actually be grieved. Those things mean something. They've been said by God himself. It's important for us to say, you can grieve the Spirit. And God's wrath burned hot against the Israelites in their rebellion. And God so loved the world that he sent his only son. And Jesus wept. What it means is that a proper understanding of the context and intent of this statement clarifies that God is not blown by emotions, rather he is fixed in his decree. That's a very helpful summary statement. There are plenty of books uh, that you can read about this topic, but I think it's worth mentioning. What we don't mean, I think this is unique to Neil, his phrase, God is not a giant cold rock of, a block of granite floating around beyond our universe. That's not what the Bible depicts God as. He's loving and compassionate and tender-hearted and forgiving and gracious and merciful. And the heavens rejoice when one sinner repents. How dare we think that all the angels and all the saints rejoice, but God just sits there stoically watching them as if he's not concerned when a sinner repents. So whatever the confession means, it doesn't mean that God is like a brick wall full of power and wisdom. He loves us, and we've been made in his image. That's important to to confess. So the third chapter tackles a topic that is very controversial today, but was not so provocative in the assembly. Interestingly, if you read, there's a a brilliant book uh, put together, assembled by Joel Beakey and Sinclair Ferguson. Uh, It's a comparison of all of the Reformed confessions and creeds of the 16th and 17th centuries. It kind of columns them out by by sections. It'll say, like, on God, and it'll say what they all say next to each other so you can see the overlap. This issue uh, on election was the consensus of the church uh, when this was... What's that? Yeah, something like that. Confessions Harmonized. It's like a brown and black book. It's almost a book that looks like this. It's like a big uh, textbook kind of book. You can find it on ReformationHeritageBooks.com. I'd appreciate any uh, kickbacks on that. Uh, yeah, but it includes Heidelberg and Belgic and others, too. Yeah, they're all, they're all in there. Yeah. Um, so this was the consensus position. Um, he mentions here in this fourth paragraph on page 61, our first question should not be, how does this, speaking of the doctrine of election, make me feel, or what was I taught growing up on this subject, or does this diminish the position of man, or will this be popular or intuitive when evangelizing? Instead, our first question should be, as far as it relates to the confession, does the confession faithfully represent the scope of biblical teaching on this subject? In other words, what does the Bible say? Remember, we're going back to chapter 1. What does the Bible say about election? Um, in fact, he mentions here, does this diminish the position of man is not a helpful question. In fact, a question that I think is helpful, rather, is does this glorify God more? If God's chief end is to glorify himself and enjoy himself forever, then the doctrines that minimize God's glory and amplify ours can't possibly be in keeping with his nature. He says, my glory I will not share with another. And that includes you and me. Um, Which is, again, one of the texts that make the deity of Christ so significant. Because if he accepts worship and he says, Father, glorify me with the glory that I shared with you before. Clearly, God would say, ain't no way if he wasn't God. Because he doesn't share his glory with anybody. And so, that's the same is true in the doctrines of salvation and your election, for example. And so whatever position you land on, you have to ask the question, does this glorify God most? 
because that's what he cares about. Now, he goes through some biblical uh, terminology and a whole list of passages here that I commend you to read. Uh, There will be no test, but um, all of these different words uh, used from Romans to 2 Peter, from Genesis to Hosea, uh, from Acts to Corinthians, uh, that deal with the notion of God electing, choosing, declaring, knowing, uh, ordering, placing people beforehand for his own glory. And I think we all probably turn to Ephesians 1 as the go-to passage, right? Before the foundation of the world, he predestined us for adoptions as sons in Christ, right? And so we can look at a passage like that as a one-off proof text. But what Hall does here is gives us, I don't know, two dozen texts that include these overlapping terms that relate to God's having chosen people from before the foundation of the world. He pre-ordered these things and decreed and declared them. And again, going back to Ephesians 1, and if he works all things according to the counsel of his will, then the conclusion is that the doctrine of election uh, is the biblical position on our salvation. Uh, He gives a number of uh, passages there on page 62, uh, speeches and acts, Paul in Romans 8 and 9, especially Romans 9, um, and others. So I commend those to you. I wanted to mention a few things in this section before we move on. And we're going to skip over Spurgeon's sermon. I know Kevin already mentioned that it was brilliant. And I'm sure that more than just he was encouraged by reading it. But we're going to skip over it for time's sake. These are things that are given to you to read and study and hopefully uh, benefit from. Uh, Part 3 on page 62, it says Jesus' own words, his perspective on predestination. John chapter 6, 37, the word there, none can come to me unless the Father who sent me calls him. He highlights that the language is drags him. And so the implication isn't that we're all just kind of like wandering around in the field looking for God. Oh, maybe he's over here. I wonder if God's over here. And then, oh, I hear my voice. And so I start wandering over this way. Rather, the position is that we're over here clinging to the stanchion of sin and Satan in the world with all of our might. And God has to rip our slimy little fingers apart and drag us grabbing through the the mud and the muck over to himself in order to be saved. Just don't miss that. That the the biblical depiction of our salvation is not a kind of human neutrality where God's like, "Mm, mm," and it's just like an easy like, wee, like over here from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. I can't imagine what that's going to sound like on the recording, by the way. (laughs) Rather, the position is that we're over here clinging to death with all of our might, and God drags us to himself. Really, it's an image. Yeah, Zach. Hmm, interesting. Um, yeah. I think it's probably a both and. God does win us to himself through the love that he shows us in Christ Jesus. And so there's something true about that. Uh, and a person's experience probably feels more like that to some degree. Individual people's experience may feel more like that. Uh, but the reality is we're dead in our sins. And so the idea is rather... Uh, it, 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 it harkens back to creation. 
Adam was a pile of nothing until God formed him and breathed life into him. Adam wasn't lying there going, I want to breathe. I can't breathe. He wasn't even alive. He was dead, which Ephesians 2 makes clear for us as well. So I don't, I don't have any issue with the idea of wooing, but the idea of dragging, I think, uh, is a more picturesque way of describing the reality of our sinful state uh, and the fact that God, his grace is irresistible. Yeah, Jacob. Right, right. And so again, it's a both hand. The, the scripture says that, that no one can come unless God drags him, that you're dead in your trespasses, and that the loving kindness of God leads to repentance. And so uh, all three, um, all three would be part of our... Yes, sir. No. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. That's true. Yeah. And so along this journey, so I think Bunyan, uh, Eric mentioned uh, Philippians 2, God w- causes us to will and work for his good pleasure. Um, and so Bunyan reflects on this and the journey of the man who's still clinging to this pack who's still holding on to it and won't let go. He's miserable walking around life with his pack, but he wants that celestial city, and it takes him having his affections turned towards that cross. Remember, it, it takes a while in the story before he looks up this path and goes, well, I've never gone wrong before following the path that he sent me on. And that's when he walks up it, and the pack, the pack is released from his shoulders. And so there is a, a bit of both happening. Uh, I'm, it's probably my disposition to emphasize the dragging part um, call that the Marine in me. Uh, but eventually, you know, uh, <laughs> but both are true. All right. So there's a, and he says this, this is fantastic. Um, chapter three, part eight. Uh, if you've got your confession with you, uh, what section am I in? Chapter three, part eight. Yeah, here we go. The doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care. We see that already just in our charitable discussion about dragging and wooing. That men attending the will of God revealed in his word, yet yielding obedience thereunto, may from the certainty of their effectual excuse me, vocation be assured of their eternal election. So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God, and humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. So at the end of the day, election is a high mystery. It's a difficult topic. It's not easily articulated and solvable. It's certainly not something, it probably wouldn't be my lead-off evangelistic uh, doctrine. Um, But as we talk about these things with people, we want to handle it with care. 
Um, it's why this is important. Just this discussion is good for me as much as I hope it is for you to think about what, you know, what am I missing in my concept of election? What passages am I leaving out? What things do I want to make sure that I articulate clearly that both uh, uh, convict and inspire and benefit people around a doctrine like this? Um, but what it does for you and me, what it ought to do, is cause us to praise, revere, and admire God for his work, and then for ourselves to be humble and diligent in our Christian life and to have abundant consolation, in other words, assurance of our salvation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. Um, And in fact, he says at the top of page 63, this is going to connect a bit with what some of you men have pointed out recently, point four, God lovingly executed predestination. So, Uh, even in the image of dragging, it's the dragging of a father whose child is clinging to a viper's tail, not the dragging of of an instructor who's trying to make someone come sit down in their chair and and be quiet, right? There's a different sort of approach. This is not not the the nanny who's dragging the kid uh, to go eat lunch at the table. It's the father who's rescuing the child from playing with the poisonous snake. Okay, the Spurgeon Sermon and so forth, as I said, we are not going to be able to dive into this. Now, Hall deals briefly with the creation chapter, beginning on page 85. Um, There are many and godly people who will not land where he lands uh, on this. Uh, in fact, some who I highly respect struggle with some of the, especially the six-day language. Uh, however, he makes mention of the fact that rather than being ambiguous on the subject, the divines were quite clear on their position on creation. If you read the chapter on creation, you will have seen that. Uh, the shorter catechism question asks the same thing about God's work of creation. God made all things out of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. And so that space of six days is an important bit of our confessional position on creation. It's a triune activity. Um, we know that from scripture itself. The Bible says that in the beginning God created and the spirit hovered. And Colossians tells us that Jesus was the one through whom all things were made. John tells us the same thing. So it's a Trinitarian work of creation, and it's done ex nihilo. That means out of nothing, out of nothing. Uh, God spoke things into existence. There are a couple words used, bara and asa, in the Old Testament that reflect on this. Bara, in particular, being an out-of-nothingness sort of verb for creation. Uh, Although chapter 2 of Genesis says that God formed man from the dust of the ground. So uh, I'll leave you to figure that out. Time prevents me. Um, but the, his point here on page 85 is very helpful. This theological maxim, ex nihilo, assures us that nothing is superior to or prior to God. That's an important point. The doctrine that God created everything out of nothing, it gives glory to God in his otherness, in his uniqueness, that he alone existed and that he spoke things by the word of his power. God wasn't sitting around in a council of gods and decided what should we do it was him alone god didn't sit around with a pile of stuff in the room next to him and go i wonder what i should make today rather in his divine prerogative and power he existed alone and spoke everything into existence second his creation extends to all realms whether visible or invisible 
That's another fantastic point to note. That God didn't just create the moon and the stars and the sun and the earth and the grass and the fish and your hair and your skin and your bones, but your spirit and your soul and your mind and the angelic realm and the heavens and everything else that we can't see. Uh, And so all of it's his. All of it's his. And third, he did it with little effort and without the aid of natural processes. Um, Little effort. Uh, Somebody did did a study on this, and I will not quote it well, so I'll just give you the gist, um, that the the amount of energy that it would take to produce um, hold on, how do I say this? It, it, it was the amount of energy that it would take to produce one second's worth of power from the sun is equivalent to filling 10 billion Olympic-sized pools with TNT and detonating them all at once. And that would give us the same mass of energy, the same amount of power as one second's worth of energy that the sun produces. And God made the whole universe by speaking it into existence. Remember what uh, was, was this Neil that pointed this out? That Beetlejuice, that was the word he was trying to say, by the way. Beetlejuice, it's the name of a star. It, it is so big that if its center were at our sun's center, then we would be closer to its middle than its edge. It would encompass Jupiter within its diameter. And God spoke all that into existence. When the, when the Hall says here, God made everything with little effort, it's not kidding. Uh, he spoke. It takes me more effort to do that than it took God to create everything. And in the space of six days, um, he's, you can read the chapter here. He's speaking a little bit against Augustine uh, and some other uh, positions of the day. Uh, he does make this comment at the bottom of 85 that's helpful. Although some fine Reformed Presbyterians have not seen this as an essential, and although the PCA has allowed exceptions within a small range, Uh, The teaching of the confession is rather clear on this subject, um, and so forth. The last statement he makes there, uh, we also need to remember that all of creation was unstained by sin. And don't forget what it says in Romans 5, death entered the world through sin, which speaks against the theistic evolution position that there could have been death prior to sin entering the world, because that kind of upends the issue of death coming because of sin. What do you do with all the death and mutations prior to sin? Uh, And everything was very good, not becoming good. It was very good when he made it and so forth. There's a great book that was just recently translated. I think Richard Gaffin did it, and it's about the historicity of Adam. uh, And he's making some arguments in that book. I just cracked it open. Um, uh, Adam, the historical Adam in the New Testament, I think it's called. Uh, But he's making arguments in that book concerning the fact that if Adam were not a real historical person, then it upends the theology of both Paul and Christ uh, and so on. Now, look at this uh, second paragraph on page 86. This is reflecting on the Shorter Catechism as well. Uh, chapter 4 discusses humans in creation as the crown of God's creation made in, in God's image. Read Psalm 8 when you get a chance. You'll notice that it is a Hebrew chiasm, which is where it's got an A-A-B-B-C center. And that center is the thrust of the passage. It's the main point which is contained within the bookends of the A frame. And so the A is, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. 
verses 1 and verses 9. And then it talks about God's creation of the created order. Heavens declare the moon and the stars, the birds and the fishes and the sheep and the goats and stuff. And then the very middle is, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. In other words, Psalm 8 teaches that you are the center of God's universe, besides himself, obviously. That you're the pinnacle of God's creation. Mankind is the pinnacle, the crown of God's creation. And we were made, listen, this is very, very important, three points that he makes here in this paragraph. Two distinct genders, male and female, possessing immortal souls. That's a very interesting statement that ought to have relevance to your evangelistic zeal and the way in which you raise your children, if you have them immortal souls, you bring a person into the world and you hold their hand either toward heaven or towards hell. Immortal souls. And that includes all the people out there that vote differently than you, that look differently than you, that have a different sexual orientation than you, and so forth. You can't become so transgender that you no longer have an immortal soul, by the way. And so just be careful of any sort of position that thinks that you can be too Muslim, too gay, or too divorced to be uh, not helpful for God or not redeemable by God, I should say. Okay. And then finally, he had mankind, Adam that is, had an unbiased liberty of will that is not present after the fall. Mark that for when we come to our DTS book in August, which is Martin Luther's The Bondage of the Will, reflecting on a number of passages, not least of which is Romans 6, that whatever a man obeys, that he is enslaved to. Uh, So you're free to operate according to your nature, which is disposed towards sin, not able not to sin. Okay, So this is part of our creation chapter uh, in the Westminster Confession, chapter 4. Lastly, Providence, I'm over. Read chapter 5 of the Westminster Confession. Um, I, will, I, will make a, I will read from page 87 here very briefly, and then I'll let you go. Chapter 5 resumes many of the themes under the rubric of Providence, many of the themes that we'd already talked about previously. After God's divine choice and salvation, and after his creation, he certainly does not retire from nurturing or governing the universe he planned or created, right? What is God's providence? God's providence is his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. That's all. He says it several times in the Shorter Catechism. All his creatures, every one of us, and all their actions, Uh, The chapter on providence states that God upholds and directs and disposes and governs all aspects of his creation. As Jesus taught, this spans even to the smallest sparrow and the hairs on your head. God is not only concerned and powerful and sovereign over your big stuff, but the little stuff as well. Which gives me great comfort every time I look in the mirror in the morning. He exercises his providence according to his infallible wisdom, his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing, in keeping with his free and unchanging decree. It is a fixed thing, which means we can have assurance when trials come our way and when things seem to go sideways in life, because God has not suddenly ceased to be wise and made a mistake. He's not suddenly ceased to be powerful and failed, and he's not ceased to be holy and done something wrong toward us. It's the doctrine of God's providence that gives us confidence every time we go to the doctor and every time we buckle our seatbelt and every time we send our kids on the bus or every time we go on leave with character and leave our wives home with other kids. You know, all those things are packaged under God's providence. This is a chapter that you need to commit to heart. 
Although providence fits with God's foreknowledge, he does not provide in reaction to human events, but is the first cause and brings about things unfallibly. But God uses secondary causes and normal means to the end uh, to work out his providence. We talked about this on Wednesday at DTS. God's sovereignty in election does not diminish man's responsibility in evangelizing or man's responsibility in responding to the evangelistic message. Because God uses secondary means, just like a carpenter puts nails into a shingle by means of a hammer, God puts souls into heaven by means of the preached word of God. And so there's secondary means that the Lord uses in order to share the gospel. He uses godly parents to rear covenant children, and so on and so forth. I commend to you Genesis 50, uh, what, you com- uh, what you intended for evil. God didn't use for good. God intended for good. His plan of Joseph's brothers predated their sinful decision to throw Joseph, or Joseph, yeah, Joseph into a well and then sell him to the Ishmaelites. It wasn't that you planned this and God used it. It was that you intended it and God intended it for good. And then we ask the question, well, what about the wickedness in the world? That's the same question Habakkuk asks. Read chapter 3. All right, guys. It's a lot to get through. I'm over by several minutes. I apologize for the length of this uh, study. If, if I hadn't been interrupted so many times. No, I'm just kidding. Let me, uh, let me close in prayer and kick you guys downstairs. Uh, please pray for our worship service. And for those of you who are members and otherwise as well, we're having our vision meeting in the fellowship hall immediately following the 1030 service. Please come to that so you can hear what God is doing in our church um, and thank him for all of his work, his providential work in the life of Christ Covenant Church over the last 12 months. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that you've given to us, that we might know your Son and believe in his name. We thank you for your person, your attributes and character and nature, that we may be assured that everything you do is holy, wise, and good for us. We thank you that you created all things, and in doing so have declared yourself as Lord and Sovereign of all, that you have called us from before the foundation of the world, that we might be adopted as sons of your Son. And we ask, Lord, that we would trust more and more in the doctrine of divine providence, that no matter what comes our way, we would never shift our eyes off of Jesus and onto the stormy waves, but would rather keep our faith firmly uh, linked to him, uh, that we would be upheld in the day of trouble. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.